My uh, pattern with the students, and I think it would be nice to do the same with you, uh, is to start with a brief uh, thought about the scriptures uh, and then prayer before we start properly. With the students, uh, I make it a habit of going through the Sermon on the Mount during the year, uh, each year. The grounds being that one of the things we wish to achieve in uh, Augustine is a development of Christian character. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. The difference between mere believers and disciples, and disciples are people of character. And that, of course, is rooted in the Beatitudes, which you all know by heart. You do at least. Um, In fact, Lolly was one of the first people to make me aware of the fact that it was important to do this, because uh, it's it's been central to my life. Uh, uh, The... Bonhoeffer says somewhere, I think it's in Life Together, or Living Together, I always get the title wrong, that everyone should ask the Lord for a passage of Scripture for them at some stage during your life. Many times, really. You should all be reading the Scriptures every day, like you clean your teeth, that's good for you. And your dentist knows whether you've done so later on, and the good Lord knows whether you read the Scriptures and prayed this morning. You may have forgotten by 11 o'clock, especially when you reach my age of uh, recent memory loss. Uh, but Bonhoeffer says you also need to say to God, please give me something from you. And the way that happens when you pray that prayer for a few weeks is that God will bring to your mind or to your attention some passage of Scripture in a way that you can't deny its importance. And when that happens, what you do is you read it every day until it really soaks into you. And what happens in that process is it comes to life. It's rather like water in the desert. Uh, And slowly, you'll begin to realize what the good Lord is at work at. Uh, For me, it was the Sermon on the Mount, and it was students that brought my attention to it, because uh, I accused them of being ignorant of the Bible, and sure enough, they were, and I used the Sermon on the Mount as the test, and none of them could tell me the Beatitudes. Uh, And as I walked away, I realized that I could not give a coherent account of that sermon without notes. Yet all of you in your professional area could give a coherent account of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 diseases without reference to a textbook, right? Or a reasonably coherent account. Uh, uh, perhaps you'd have to go to Hippocrates to look up the therapy, but that's, uh, that's always changing. But, but you know what I'm saying, is that the mark of somebody who really knows something is that they can talk about it without notes. Uh, They may use them in order to structure them, but you don't actually need them. So here was a a temporal area of my life which I took more seriously than the so-called eternal area. I mean, it was incoherent. Uh, So I learned the Sermon on the Mount by heart, and it transformed my thinking. The first thing I realized, of course, was that we don't have the Sermon on the Mount in the Bible. We have the lecture notes for the Sermon on the Mount, and you have to fill in the blanks. And it's filling in the blanks that's so exciting. I don't think there's a half verse that doesn't need a blank filling in. Nobody would would agree to listen to Jesus for 20 minutes. My guess is that everything he spoke was probably expanded for about three hours. One day we'll find out, but something of that order. And, of course, he said similar things in each village. That's why the disciples could remember them, and that's also why there are minor differences, uh, because there were minor variations, depending on the needs of the village. So in learning the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 
all sorts of things came to life. And I must not go in that direction because the next three hours would disappear without any trouble at all. Uh, the end of Matthew 4, Jesus was healing all the sick. In, and the next morning, Matthew uh, turns up to see what has been going on. I think he ripped Jesus off at some point, and he really wanted to know what this man was really like, because the interview had been different. But when he got to the village, there was no one there. And it says, very simply, Jesus, going into the clinic and seeing the patient, said, not today, I'm off up the mountain. And not quite in those words, of course, but that's the thought. And all physicians need to recognize that healing is not a continuous activity. In fact, in the, the long scheme of things, we lose all wars. We win some battles. Uh, we're all going to die. And, of course, if we'd had the healing capacity that Jesus has had, my guess is that we would spend most of our life healing, right? You know, we, we, we'd actually enjoy it constantly, making people better. Jesus didn't do that. There are recorded healings, uh, probably more than most healers did, but not the number that you would have expected with those kinds of powers. <coughs> and certainly as I came to understand the Sermon on the Mount seriously, I began to realize that we need to take our Lord's advice seriously in this area and to get our priorities right and to start thinking about how we structure our lives in terms of time expended on different things. And it's very easy for it to get out of line. And the Beatitudes, of course, are the key stages through which each thought has to be processed. Intellectual honesty, leading to repentance, leading to uh, submission to the leadership of Christ, leading to hungering and thirsting for more, leading to mercy, to purity of heart, to mercifulness peacemaking and inevitably the consequences of that in a fallen world, some persecution. That's the, the Christian character formation process. Uh, that changed my whole thinking about how I do my science, how I did everything. That I was not to allow things to dominate to the extent that they could. And it's part of trust, isn't it? And of course science, especially leading edge science, has got a huge element that is currently suppressed in the medical school, an element of surprise. Uh, it's not inappropriate to pray that God will guide your reading, uh, your thinking, the experiments you plan. Uh, that's time well spent because, as Einstein put it, uh, I felt my equations then there was a great deal of work to do to find out whether my feelings were correct. That's where the genius of Einstein lay, but the, he, was, oh, he was clearly understood that the, the idea came from somewhere else. Uh, similarly with Newton, uh, Hooke had the same basic intuition, but only Newton could do the mathematics. Uh, and of course, uh, the whole growth of science uh, shows this phenomenon. So let's start with prayer. Father, at the beginning of this week of thought, we pray that your spirit may be at work in our hearts and minds. That the inadequacies of those who teach will not in any way prevent the teacher, your spirit, from working deeply in our hearts and minds. 
Make This Our Lord a conference that seeks primarily to bring our learning and our knowledge under your Lordship, that we may understand what a university should be. Lord, what I say that is not from you, I pray that it may be swiftly forgotten and that you will use our offerings in your service for Christ's sake. Amen. See, down the road we have a multiversity, the multiversity of Ottawa. Uh, what we're trying to do here is a university. That's why the courses are all integrated. The uni in university meant that there was one idea of what truth and learning should be, and it was all to come together under God's authority. That's no longer the case. So the faculties in the institution along the road can't even talk to one another using the same words. They use the same words, but they don't have the same meaning. Uh, you have people who don't believe in any real truth, and then you have scientists who are kind of naive realists. They think they're discovering, discovering something real about the world. Although at a deep level, the idea of an atom is not what an atom is. I mean, an atom is our construction of the data that we have, and it's good enough to allow us to make drugs. Uh, but it's certainly very different from what Dalton thought, and probably nobody really knows what it is even yet. Uh, that's where we're at. Now, I want to start by reading um, from Margaret Mead, uh, because we're dealing with the ancient roots of medicine this week. And Margaret Mead provides a suitable starting point for several reasons. But let me read first and explain why I choose her first. For the first time in our tradition, there was a complete separation between killing and curing. Throughout the primitive world, the doctor and the sorcerer tended to be the same person. He with power to kill had power to cure, including especially the undoing of his own killing activities. With the Greeks, the distinction was made clear. One profession, the followers of Asclepius, were to be dedicated completely to life under all circumstances, regardless of rank, age, or intellect. The life of the slave, the life of the emperor, the life of the foreign man, the life of a defective child, all equal. This is a priceless possession which we cannot afford to tarnish. But society always is attempting to make uh, the physician into a killer, to kill the defective child at birth, to leave the sleeping pills beside the bed of the cancer patient. It is the duty of society to pr protect the physician from all such requests. Now, I choose Margaret Mead because one of the things I want you to go away from this week with is the recognition that in the current state of our culture, it's always good to start your discussion, if you can find it, with an atheist. It takes away all reflex anti-Christian comments. It, they are sort of hamstrung from the beginning. And she's made the points that we will come back to this evening, basically. We'll get back to the ethics of the early part when medicine was being formed. But uh, she also has that capacity to gloss over the realities and go for the, the rhetorical points. I mean, there's no discussion of, of uh, the uncertainties about Hippocrates or anything like that. But what she did clearly grasp, which was clearly true, is that something happened to the understanding of the world. Uh, that had its roots somewhere in the 4th, uh, 5th and 6th centuries B, uh, BC and really began to flourish uh, when the Christian era commenced. Uh, and it changed medicine. We are not a post-enlightenment profession. 
much as many of our leaders would like us to be so, we have much, a much longer history than that. And if we don't assert that history, we, we stand to lose in the, in the long run uh, because of what is happening to us. And it's the next, that's the next thing I want to, to get to. And uh, I'm going to uh, annoy Terry in a few moments' time by having to clip his recording uh, when I give you a chance to talk to one another. But uh, for those who are listening in the future, I'm sorry, but you'll just have to come to Augustine College to get the full flavor. Uh, the guys who, and women who are assembled here today are what will make this week interesting. But a word that we use all the while today, uh, technology, is not in fact the word that the Greeks used. Uh, this is a neologism of really America. Uh, the, words that the, Greek, the words that the Greek used were, was techne. Now, since we're looking at the ancient roots of things, all societies have techniques. Even chimpanzee societies have techniques. They use tools. Uh, but technology is something quite different. Uh, and I want us to take a little time to think about that this morning as a preamble to other things so that we can begin to realize how thoughts in one time were used in one way and then over time they, they subtly change and they reappear really quite transformed with a power that, that we hadn't thought about. And this has a, potentially a huge effect on medicine. What does technique and technology, well, what's the difference that, that's involved there? Well, I think it's the difference between uh, the craftsman and the modern world. Craftsmen of the ancient world were concerned with how they did things. Um, and they honed their techniques. They were proud of them in various ways. Uh, technology does not do that in the same way. Uh, those of you who have had to deal with the technology of Mr. Gates knows that, know that. He did not set out to hone his techniques to produce the best product he could, did he? He produced the best product for his purposes, which was to gain control of a whole area of human life and make himself an extremely wealthy man. And he did it by means of technology, where the understanding of how techniques could be used for other purposes was divorced from the technique itself. That thought does not occur in the era, in the era that we are talking about, where our profession began. But we are being moved towards technology and away from technique now. You probably, well, there's no question, you are not allowed to practice the best medicine you would like all the while, are you? It's one of the major things that has happened in my lifetime in medicine. This was not a thought that occurred when I began in medicine. Uh, you saw patients. Uh, I have to say this even to Americans, that the best time of my medical practice was in the early British national health system. And I suspect if you talk to people from the prairies, they would say that when Medicare came in in Saskatchewan, it really worked very well. But of course... There was an underpinning of character which meant that people didn't abuse it. That's gone now. Can you imagine it? People actually apologize for getting me out of bed at night in the early uh, days of the NHS because they lived with the uncertainties of 
life without adequate insurance, and then suddenly that was gone, and they were overwhelmed with relief for ordinary working class people, and they did not abuse the system. That's gone now. The same was true in the prairies. Because the prairies had a deep-rooted Mennonite-type ethos where the abuse of the system was wrong. That's all gone now. People demanding that they be treated for the most trivial things at inappropriate times for their convenience and no one else's. That's a different world. But the world that we're looking at is one where techniques developed. And in every culture this is essential. The, the beginnings of specialization that make development possible. But it's a long, slow process. Of course, I've been interested in this because of my practical interests in malnourished children. We understand the science of malnutrition. We've been utterly incapable of translating that science into application in animistic cultures. And uh, I've spent years thinking about why that is so. I can go there and do it. I can train my children to do it. But cannot make it an indigenous phenomenon. Whereas in Europe, after the Second World War, there was a huge amount of malnutrition following the starvation that the Nazis induced, especially in Holland. The first thing the Allies did was set up a committee to decide how to deal with it. Before the committee reported, there was no malnutrition in Europe. The economy hadn't improved. All that happened is the war had stopped and there had been a trickle of food. But in a deeply enculturated Christian culture, that food went to the children. In an animistic society, it doesn't. Cultures are different. Uh, and for medicine, that's important to, to recognize. There is no such thing, and neither will you ever see a multicultural patient. If you think about it, the beast doesn't exist. It's a phrase worth remembering. I have never seen a multicultural patient can stop some of our liberal opponents in their tracks. Uh, have you, is the question, or... If you want to put it in the form of a question, have you ever seen a multicultural patient? The answer is no. Every patient you see inhabits a particular culture. And the culture they inhabit will determine how they understand suffering and death and justice. And all these big issues that are going to come up during the week, uh, they're not the same. When you've heard a man in Africa say to the surgeon, but I could buy a new wife for the cost of that operation, you realize cultures are different. You know, that is a different concept. I, I think every feminist in Canada should be required to live in an African village for six months. Uh, I think that would make them understand that the, the demand for rights women, which is perfectly legitimate and just, only flourished where Christianity had flourished, and it's not an accident. Now, you'd have to come for ten years to get the whole sequence. But way back in a village... Somebody turned out to be able to do some things better than others. Just before writing occurred. And so they found, obviously, that they could barter their skills for food. And if they preferred making things to growing things, so things developed. And by and large, for many, many, many centuries, people tried to do the job as well as they could. Only... In the 19th and 20th centuries, now becoming very sophisticated, has the idea of not doing the job as well as you could become acceptable as part of technology. 
I was told the other day that Ford actually employs one group of engineers to work very carefully on what could be built into a Ford to make it utterly reliable for five years and not so reliable thereafter. Ah. Why? Well, they've thought about the economics, especially if they can do it in a way that makes it slightly cheaper uh, in the first place. Uh, this has been going on for some time. You know, my grandfather was a Rolls-Royce toolmaker, proud of the fact that he could work to a ten-thousandth of an inch in his construction of tools. Uh, toolmakers are irrelevant now because computer-assisted designs is, what, ten-thousandths of an inch? Do it to a millionth. That's why our cars run longer, because the tolerances can be controlled. But it's being used for purposes other than primarily the making of a thing. It's now primarily used to make money for some people. Uh, and in that process, we have got to the slippery slope where we're beginning to ask ourselves, how should we do this? And of course, the people who run the system, who control you, are post-enlightenment in their thought. They think much more about technology than they do about technique, the old word. And the consequences are going to be real. And if you only transfer information that you acquired when you were in medical school to patients, who's going to know more about any obscure disease the day after the diagnosis, you or the patient if you're in, well, almost any subject? Perhaps not so obscure diagnoses. You can't keep up with everything, can you, by any means? So what will be the solution? Uh, the solution's inevitable. You can already see it beginning. Uh, when I started in medicine, physicians did electrocardiograms. And I was taught by people, uh, one of the guys who put in the first intravenous in London. Well, he wasn't the first. Christopher Wren actually infused... Uh, oil into his dog through a goose quill, but uh, that, that's the first uh, intravenous feeding that I'm aware of, but uh, uh, that was done by physicians. But the moment a technique can be done by somebody with less training and therefore less pay, in a technological system, I don't think you can resist that, can you? Uh, and with access to information becoming what it is, none of us will have more information than our patients. So unless we have something more than that, we're in trouble. Eliot understood this problem a long, long while ago. In the, I think it's in Choruses on the Rock. He says, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Now our dean prides himself on creating an information-rich society. Sadly, it's also a wisdom-poor society. Uh, and unless we can get wisdom, knowledge and information in their right places, and we major in wisdom and real knowledge, we'll be out of business. Is there any, can, even the surgeons here, can you defend yourself against somebody saying hernia should be fixed by a woman with better fine motor coordination than you? I don't think you can, can you, really? You could train someone to do that operation. It's a safe operation. You'd need to be done 
Lots of them are being done, so in any large city, I think there is a hernia hospital in Toronto, isn't there? Uh, probably still at the current stage of affairs, all the operations done by MDs, but there's actually no reason why they should. And I don't think that that can be resisted indefinitely. I mean, in Africa, you already have caesarean sections done by nurses, and they do them just as well, or in many cases, better. Their own university along the way, in the animal house, is the best surgeon in the place. There's a woman with no medical training who can do operations on rats that some of the guys can't do on people. What a superb pair of hands, and she can use equipment too. This is a process that's bound to go ahead. So you, I'm sure we're going to see sliced off different bits of medicine into technique. Uh, I call it muffler shop medicine. Uh, and frankly, if I want my muffler changed, I'm going to go to a muffler shop because they're going to do it in 20 minutes. Yeah. One of my colleagues changed his own last week. His wife laughing. He said it took him 12 hours. <laughs> and he didn't have the tools, you know. Uh, same thing's going to happen to us. But way back, it was just <coughs> technique that mattered, and it was located in the con context of a stable society. Now we're moving to this different world. Uh, we have been moving for over 100 years, and it's going to have huge uh, implications. Uh, medicine needs to rediscover its roots, in my view. And that's really for, for, the, for this evening's discussion, because it needs to be more open-ended. But you can be thinking about it during the day. I would put it to you that the four key criteria that underlie the practice of medicine were established way back in the uh, 4th and 5th centuries, and they are these. You can just write them down now as four items. And you can be asking yourself questions. What is the role of transcendence in the practice of medicine? That's number one. What is the role of transcendence? And will it become even more important in the future? I would argue that it will, and I think we can easily see why. I mean, Jack Kevorkian had no idea about transcendence. It had something to do with what he did. Number two, what is the nature of the practice of medicine? Is it, as the medical school implies, applied science? I would argue that medicine is fundamentally a moral activity, not a technical one. So number two is, what is the nature of medicine? Is it primarily moral or primarily technical? Number three, uh, and this is, we're mainly Protestant here, I suspect, we're going to have to think this through a great deal more than we have so far. What is the role of the sanctity of life? Certainly those who rule you in your HMOs and in a state-funded government do not wish us to have a high view of the sanctity of life. And they're already winning. By, by default, as the technique becomes technology, we have the techniques of molecular biology producing... Well, what's, what do we get within weeks of getting a new gene? What's the one piece of practical application we can have from a new gene within weeks? Screening tests, that's right. We don't get any treatment by any means. I mean, we've known the molecular biology of sickle cell anemia for 30 years. It hasn't made a scrap of difference to treatment. Now, there has been some marvelous stuff like the, the Philadelphia chromosome. With, there you get the gene and you get the expression of the gene and you get the structure of the receptor site and bang, you've got a designer 
uh, drug that works in a leukemia that was previously rapidly fatal, now 80% of them are cured. Uh, wonderful. Uh, but that's rare. But within weeks, we have the capacity for the manipulators of the system to start changing the system as a whole. So you're in the States, your previous Surgeon General was proud of the fact that the prevalence of Down syndrome in Washington, D.C., when she was in charge of public health there, plunged. Now, it wasn't even with a, with a, a genetic one here. It was screening with a, with a high uh, sensitivity for detective Downs, but not a, a very high capacity to exclude normals. Uh, she sacrificed a lot of normal children in order to make sure there were fewer Down syndrome. And she was proud of the fact. No discussion of that phenomenon. Uh, that's the people who rule like that. You know, I, th I believe that going through the courts in the States at the moment is a case where an insurance company is trying to argue that their liability for a disabled child ceases at the cost of the abortion because it could have been prevented if, if the woman had accepted antenatal screening. That's horrendous. But that, that's, that's technology when techniques are cobbled together in different ways for a different end. Where we're starting today is way back where the proper thing was done. Where people built and made the best that they could because they took pride in what they did. Uh, and you can see that. That's why art from those periods, I'm sorry that there isn't, for once I'd like an eight-day week because there should be a, a section on art as well. Uh, and it would be a very interesting one, but I guess we'll, we'll get round to those things in due course. Uh, maybe we'll have just one week on that if we could persuade David Jeffrey to come and do it. He's already got it all in place. But uh, we also have uh, David Stewart who's capable of doing that and does do it for us. So... That's the thing to remember about the past. That all ancient cultures were equally intelligent. I don't think there's any evidence that intelligence is accumulating. But they were applied in smaller contexts. And, and doing your job well was important. It's always been important to people. And much of the dissatisfaction now in industry is now beginning to invade medicine is the recognition that other people decide how well your job is going to be done. And of course, ultimately, you can get to the point where you don't even know what you're doing in the bigger context. You go back to the atom bomb project in the 1940s. Most people did not know what they were actually doing. There were just a few. They were doing this little bit, and they, would, they couldn't conceive of putting it all together. Different world. And we need to think about those different worlds, because I suspect that when we've closed down all the Catholic and Grace hospitals and the like, and Baptist and Methodist and all the rest, we'll have to reopen them as the real thing. I mean, at the moment, they just have the name attached in most cases. The, the Catholics have made a better attempt. I mean, I think the Protestants is game over, isn't it? The, 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 the Salvation Army hung on for a while. I don't know whether they still do in the States, but they're being forced out here. But when that's done, we have to go back and reintegrate medicine where it belongs within the context of the church, where, where you ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And how is medicine to be under that rubric and to behave in that kind of way?
So what kind of uh, world? Well, let's take a little break because we've gone already over the, the, the teaching limit. And One, two, and three, and we get four. Oh, sorry, I forgot four. Right. Yes, so, yeah, <laughs> thank you so much. It's typical, and it's what Terry was frightened of, that I will wander off and then fortunately somebody will bring me back. And usually I remember to come back after the rabbit trail. But uh, yes, four, four is integrity. Uh, what is the role of the individual physician's conscience in the practice of medicine? There's no question that those who rule us want to override that. And we're going to have to defend this vigorously. Write down now, www.consciencelaws.org. Uh, www.consciencelaws.org and go visit. This is uh, Father Sean Murphy's uh, website. Uh, to try and get together, and he's got people from around the world to, to join his board, uh, advisory board, to, to simply keep up to date on this whole area. And so you can see what things are being tried out in various places. They always try it, like you see regular attempts in the newspapers to pretend that paedophilia is not a bad thing and there's a great outcry, and they'll leave it for a bit, and then they'll try again, knowing if they keep on, gradually they'll erode, and eventually it'll be, they'll get what they want. And he's, the, the administrators are the same. They talk to one another, they seek consensus, they say, we ought to be able to do this, but the physicians won't allow it. But we'll try here, we'll try there, and uh, work our way through it, and we need to be alert to these things. So that was number four. I, I think we, sh we could switch off and uh, take a five or six minute break to talk to your neighbours about the question of whether technique is dominating or technology is dominating in your world and, and how it is, is it changing your life? Uh, I think if you don't come to the conclusion that it is, you need to think about it a bit more. Just to give you a clue about the kind of way that uh, I would suggest you think about it. George Grant, uh, the Canadian philosopher, not the American uh, guy, um, wrote a paper, uh, in fact it's a book called Technology and Justice, many years ago. It's probably on the shelf there, I'm not sure it should be, but uh, uh, the library is less than five years old, so there's all sorts of holes. Um, but in it he discusses this issue, and at one point he, he takes the example of the motor car, as talking about technology, because when Ford started moving from people handcrafting and to mass production and this thing, it was going to become cheaper. And he said, but imagine somebody coming into an American town hall meeting or something like that, or a community meeting, and, and saying to the people there, look, I, I have this concept for a machine that will allow you to drive from Virginia to Ottawa in two days or less. Uh, and really make the economy really heat up and we'll all get wealthier. Uh, will you fund me to go ahead with this? And then let's imagine there was one wise person in the audience said, but what difference will this make to human life, to human communities? And let's say the guy had some real precedence, pres prescience, uh, and he says, well, I guess there'll be a few thousand people a year who are killed by this machine, but overall the benefits will be great. Now, if you hadn't thought about a car 
and an automobile. And somebody suggested a technique that put together in the appropriate way would transform the economy at the cost of a few thousand lives a year. I don't know how many people die of road accidents in North America a year now. Probably somebody here can tell me. Anybody got a guess what it is? I have no idea, actually. But it's got to be thousands. Uh, if somebody knows, you can tell me. Somebody can go on the internet and find out. But would they have said yes in a town hall meeting or a community meeting a hundred years ago if they had thought about the impact on human life? I suspect a lot of people say, I'm not sure we want a technique that will kill thousands of people a year. But can you imagine any of us backing down on it now? In other words, technology changes the way we think about one another and the way we think about life. And you can't deny that. Now, have a few minutes and uh, talk to one another about what techniques you see coming along and which ones you think are going to be important. I, in particular, want to learn something this week, and uh, I should be very interested to see what techniques you think are going to be technologized into the larger system and used against us. Any particular comments that anyone wants to make first out of those discussions? Brief though they were. You can go walking and talk about them this afternoon, longer if you wish, but anything that you see on the horizon that has more implications than we're probably thinking about at the moment. Well, that talk has nothing. <laughs> John, you've, you've read a uh, quote before. I'm sorry, I don't know who it is about um, the, kind of his, the kind of position. Oh, yeah, kind of yeah, position. Sydenham. Yeah, yeah. yes. In our discussion, we talked about uh, how residents are no longer longer examining patients for acute appendicitis, they're ordering CT scans and so forth. And, and I, I think even our patients' expectations for the kind of position they want is changing. I think they don't expect uh, physical contact, history taking, a relationship no. examination. It's process now, isn't it? It's technique process. And we're doing that in the medical schools. We see it all the while. We don't expect them to make a diagnosis in many cases. We expect them to set the process going in the right direction, uh, ask for the right tests, and it will generate the answer. So we are allowing ourselves to become more and more uh, replaceable cogs in the machine, yes. Process as opposed to... I don't know what the word is for what we used to do before. Um, and Ed has disappeared at this point. He might be able to give me the word, you know, but... Uh, it's certainly process that we uh, evaluate students on now. Uh, yes? I had a patient uh, Friday, who, uh, Thursday, excuse me, who came in and asked if, uh, if she could fly to California from Indiana to have a total body MRI because a member in the family, they had missed the diagnosis and wanted to die of heart disease, so a heart attack apparently. It took me about 15 minutes to explain how a total body MRI would not have made the diagnosis of involving ischemic heart disease and the fact that the things you find there that, that are incidental elements and there's things and it might not show her any of her diseases since all of her diseases were endocrine. But she, that was the mentality is if I fly to California and have a total body MRI, you won't miss any illness on me. Yep. Yeah. And they expect that nothing will be missed and they want to sue if it is. Yes. Yeah. There's a contrast, John, in developing countries, as you well know, um, unless you've actually touched a patient at Brussels, so the one that chest you have an example. That's right, yes, yes. Uh, whereas, you know, we're moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. 
another yeah. thing. Sorry. Another thing that concerns me too is that technology or process is replacing thinking. Oh, so process instead of thought, perhaps. That, 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 that's the way. That, hmm. that, that's an interesting. And even the educational system is oriented around the, the you know, continually asking regurgitant questions yes. rather than thought questions. Oh, yeah. The continual assessment is regurgitant, not thinking. Yes, and it's killed the education system. Uh, I can say to uh, students now, uh, develop a sort of airy-fairy description <coughs> of uh, their experience of the university as a place where it's been one of joyful uh, building of a coherent intellectual model that will serve them for the rest of their lives. But this time, those in third year are already laughing. And uh, I can go on like that for a minute or two, and they'll all be in fits of laughter because it bears no relationship to what's going on in the university. It's basically become a place of what, what was joyful uh, discovery has become anxious, continuous evaluation. And that's technique again. You see that, 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 that the people who we have allowed to govern our education system are technologists of education. And they say, you can't tell what somebody's like. You can only observe what they do. So you get... Uh, knowledge, skills, and attitudes, whereas what you and I are interested in is character. Now, some of the best physicians I've known, who I would trust absolutely, would fail abysmally on all our attitudes bit. And some of the people who scored 100% in attitudes are charlatans of the first order, and you wouldn't want them near anybody of your ilk that you love or care about. And of course, you, you can... You can say to any medical class anywhere, and it's fun to do it. I do it all the while. It's one of my opening gambits, because you have to get their attention, because they're bored by inclination. Uh, and uh, I, I say, uh, if I said to you that there are people in your class, and you can say this within six weeks of starting medical school, about whom you've decided you will not trust the care of a dog of yours to them, what would you say? And all around the room, within six weeks of starting medicine, there's rueful smiles. And I could go on and say, if we took a vote about who they are, would there be a consensus? And the answer is yes. <laughs> so within six weeks, the class knows that 10 or 20% of the class would be better off outside of medicine. And it's the techniques of evaluation that have allowed them in. Oh, sorry, it's coming up on the thing. Nice, I'm sorry. You're not allowed to have any individual variations with modern technology controlling what I'm allowed to do. Yeah. One of the things, the, the, the whole aspect of money, that uh, even, even in the drug companies and other businesses that, that, uh, that grasp the technology and then promote it to us as, whether it's real or not, then promote it as the as standard of care. Yeah. They don't take you out to lunch and all these other things because it doesn't work. They do it because it does work, yes. But I gather it's stopping. There's been some agreement in the States on that one. Is that right? Yes, yes. yes. They'll find other ways to, to manipulate. But it's, again, it's applied psychology and everything else. There's a wonderful line in uh, Wendell Berry somewhere <laughs> in the Mad Farmer Liberation Front where he says... Uh, Basically, put your mind in a drawer. Don't call us. We'll call you when we want you to buy something. Uh, that's roughly where it's at now. Shop till you drop. Yeah. I think the saddest place on earth is an American mall on a Saturday afternoon. 
I was at a conference in, where's the Mall of America, Minneapolis or somewhere like that. And it was just across the way from the, the conference center, so I walked across it. I thought it was the most depressing experience I'd ever had in my life. Uh, to see people walking from store to store to store to buy things they did not need. Uh, horrendous, horrendous. And no one talking in an animated, you know, uh, joyful sense, because they're all focused on things. It was horrendous. Well, that's set you uh, going with some thoughts. You, uh, Christine, you had a comment, sorry. I was just going to make a contrast point to what you said about patient demand and the best of technology. Yeah. On the flip side of that, I think people still really are craving that contact, that connection with the physician. Um, a friend of mine is a lawyer, and she just made the point that no doctor that is caring and kind, not no, but rarely gets sued. That's right. It's the ones that are cold and, and just very methodical, not the ones that are willing to make the, the connection yes. to the patient, yes. regardless of the error. Yes. Most suits are due to failure of communication, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's something for... Actually do want. They do want the latest technology, but on the flip side, they still do want yep. that real connection. Yes. That's one of the reasons why if your church has 300 members, it should employ a nurse. Because the function of that nurse is to go with sick patients for their interactions with the medical system because the time pressures are so great that even when you are a caring person, you can come over as not caring because of the time pressures. So the physician can communicate with the nurse more effectively than, say, particularly the elderly are slowing down a bit. And then he or she makes the bridge, and the elderly will actually change their wills in favor of the church to keep that program going. Parish nursing. Uh, it, uh, you can see what's going to happen. We're going to reinvent what we destroyed, and this is one of the ways it's going to uh, it's going to uh, uh, develop. One other aspect of technology is that the mere presence of an option um, allows people to make perhaps immoral decisions that they would would not have been willing to do otherwise. For yep. instance, we are deluged with requests for the morning after pill, yep. and seem to be portrayed as. Uh, some sort of unpleasant Puritan if we think it's wrong. That's that. right, yes. I was surprised that none of you brought up the pill, which I think is the classic example of technique taking over in human society in a way that's been horrendous. Those of you who have been in medicine a few years, when I started in medicine, uh, you could get through medical school with knowledge of three sexually transmitted diseases. Last count, it was over 35. I don't know what it's actually up to now, but there's probably an ID person here who can give me a number. But that's a and that's due to contraception. That's what caused it. It produced a contraceptive mentality, and the net result has been the explosion of sexually transmitted disease and diminished fertility of women around the world because of it. We don't have a population problem. We're going to have an underpopulation problem, especially in the Western world. I saw that Britain has dropped below 1.5 for the first, uh, just recently. You know, this it's plunging. It's Japan is in absolutely free fall population-wise, and being so incredibly xenophobic, uh, they can't survive. And the Japanese have never had significant immigration because you've got to be Japanese. But they're in free fall. Again, techniques. Abortion being, of course, the one in Japan where I think seven abortions for every live birth has been going on for some time. Because they didn't allow the pill for a while. Okay, so the ancient world didn't think in those ways. It thought in terms of locally related people who developed techniques without 
Well, let me ask you the question again. What's the essential difference between technique and science, then? It yes. comes down to the why questions. Yes, it comes down to that question of understanding on a larger framework. In the modern sense, it's a paradigm-driven way of understanding. Although, I see most of you have been reading a Lindbergh, Lindbergh nicely points out there is no good definition of science. None of them work. The best one is science is what scientists do. <laughs> which, is <laughs> uh, which is true, but not very helpful. Uh, because then you're down to the problem of defining the scientist. Um, but, uh, and the other one is doing your damnedest with no holes barred. Uh, and, of course, that's the way it works. You throw away some experiments and keep others in the early stages. As you, uh, and it's, it's intuitively driven. Uh, when I started my PhD, I wanted to do something, and at 18 months, I didn't have a single result. I knew it, it had to be possible. I got meningitis and was off for three months. Went back and uh, 18 months later I had 15 papers. You know, that's quite a production rate. But that's the way it goes. Uh, but it was intuitive in its... The, the idea that it could be done. And the techniques simply wouldn't come together for about two years. And then they did. Uh, that's the way it works. So... The presuppositions of science, nevertheless, are real. So animist societies, the very ancient, will never produce science. Do you see why? Because an animist society believes for its explanation of the existential problems of life in evil spirits. Now, the essence of evil spirits is that they are local and they make sense of life. Take Africa as an example. If you're standing in a rainforest and you say to an animist, well, this just happened by chance. Do you think they'll believe you? Absolutely not. In common sense, which is largely evaporated on this continent, says, this was made. This, this has all the, the evidence of artistry. But the life of a, an African in Central Africa, who perhaps half his children may not live to maturity, uh, crops fail at random, has precious little control over the environment. How much evidence is there for a God of love in their world? Not that much. It takes considerable faith to believe in a God of love. But evil spirits, they make perfect sense of the existential problems of life. They explain arbitrary death, arbitrary suffering, arbitrary injustice. Uh, it's a very good explanatory model for getting on with life. You either shake your fist or try to placate the evil spirits. And somewhere way out there, there may be a distant God. But if you believe in evil spirits, what fundamental concept that emerged strongly in the 15th and 16th, well, actually, 14th, 15th and 16th centuries in northwestern Europe is unthinkable? That's right, inductive reasoning as Bacon put it. Because to, to believe, to trust inductive reasoning, you must believe that under the surface chaos of life there is predictable uh, behavior. And we could believe that because we believed in a predictable God. It was essential to the whole process. But if evil spirits are at work, there's absolutely no reason why an experiment done in Ottawa should give the same answer as an experiment done in New York. 
different evil spirits, different outcomes, at least on occasions. No way that you would ever do it. So there's no foundation in a pagan culture which is fatalistic for many educational activities. One of the ones that's clearly showing up in our neo-pagan society is the failure of sex education. Because the kids you want to get at are neo-pagans, fatalistic. You give them a condom and they blow it up and make a balloon. But in the process they make the other kids feel as though there's something wrong with their hormones and they do stupid things and get caught. But sex ed doesn't work for the, precisely the people you're trying to, to get at because they're fatalistic. Uh, the country that we've been to that's most loaded with condoms is South Africa. I mean, they're everywhere. They even put their own flag on condoms. You know, I can't imagine anything this patriotic, but never mind. <laughs> uh, the net result, they have a huge explosion of sexually transmitted disease. Perhaps the biggest in the world at the moment. Because they, they are being dissociated from their tribal taboos, living in the city, which is not an African uh, invention, and behaving fatalistically. The combination is lethal. When we first went to South Africa, 88, I think it was, uh, I went to Soweto to teach, and they had had their first cases of AIDS uh, that year in Soweto. Now everybody triple gloves in Soweto. You go to Gala, to Gala Ferry, and I think it's two out of three patients coming into emergency are HIV positive. You get one admission with HIV positivity, and then you're dead. Uh, to get the Madunza, the black medical school, 20% of the first-year students are HIV positive. And all that in, in just over 10 years. That's, that's horrendous. That's <coughs> animism dissociated from tribal taboos, but without the capacity to think in the way that we presume you know, things should work. So, you see, tremendously kind-hearted Americans and Europeans, well, they're more cynical and less kind-hearted, but you take American women to Africa and with nice warm churches and they see women pounding for eight hours a day. Next time they come back, they bring a mill. It functions for about a year at the most, and then it's dead because oil is not an animistic thought. <laughs> Since the machine, when it stops, stops because of an evil spirit, what has oil got to do with it? Technology cannot be transferred. I don't know when our universities will learn that. I mean, they have departments of development. Uh, the basic question is, show me development that has worked in the absence of a move from animism to theism of some sort, or even pantheism at a certain level. So animism, the, the science is impossible. Uh, once gods who were more clearly defined uh, emerge, then you begin to, those societies that m came beyond animism, science becomes possible to a degree. Uh, it didn't happen, of course, uh, in the sense that we know it. Uh, the Western tradition, Hebrew thought would make science possible, but they didn't take much interest in science. Uh, they were interested in God's law, the moral law. And, of course, that preparation over thousands of years has made them the world's greatest scientists now. And the, the hard Nobel Prizes are really a question of whether European Jews are going to beat American Jews, you know, uh, to a very large extent. Here's this 50 million or less 
population of Jews in the world wiping the floor with all the bigger cultures. It's worth thinking about why that is the case. Uh, the Greek tradition, uh, which merges with the Hebrew one to give us who we are, also makes medicine uh, makes science sort of possible. But Aristotle would never do experiments, or he knew about them, but he didn't. He knew about inductive reasoning, but he didn't trust it. He wanted deductive reasoning. And the trouble is, our minds are not big enough to start from God and get to the particulars of how the Philadelphia gene works. You know, we can't do that long process of argumentation. We're just simply not capable of it. But we can start from the other end with inductive and get a little way. And so it wasn't until really uh, the Merton group in Oxford in the 13th and 14th centuries and Galileo started doing experiments and starting to think about what that meant, doing little things uh, that they could observe reasonably accurately and starting to work outwards. And the rest, of course, is an explosion. The problem, of course, that, that really is amazing. And uh, I'd love to, if any of you have got an answer to this question, please tell me. But one of the things I really want to ask God is, why did you allow four men who believed in God to create a world in Western Europe where, which became tacitly atheistic? because Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and Newton were all theists. Newton was a slightly odd theist, but uh, Galileo and Copernicus <coughs> were devout Catholics, and Kepler was a very de devout uh, Lutheran. And Kepler even wrote prayers in his lab book. Now, those four men changed the understanding of the universe from this sort of uh, Middle Ages understanding to... Uh, a different model, which was essentially mechanical. And within a hundred years or so of Newton's death, Laplace, a practicing Catholic, says to uh, Napoleon when asked where God fits in his science, he says, Sir, no need of that hypothesis. And he's right. Once inductive reasoning was shown to work and the experimental method worked, you don't need to believe the system that made those thoughts possible. They're empirically defensible. You don't need uh, the origins. And uh, that's what happened. And then we moved on in the 19th century to people like Huxley who were definitively determined to try and remove any connection between science and faith. It's a long and interesting process. Uh, it's got allowed. Now I think turning and coming back again because of the wonders of uh, quantum physics and molecular biology and the like... God's never in a hurry, but uh, I wish I knew quite what the, the benefit of this detour of the last 200 years has been. Because as McIntyre says, it, it really, since the Enlightenment, theologically and philosophically, it's been largely downhill. And uh, we need to go back to some ancient understandings. So, that kind of overview, let, let's think a little bit more about what, what were the key issues. Now, how many of you have actually read some Lindbergh? Oh, you're better than the average set of students. Uh, did you find Lindbergh interesting to read? Uh, pray for the man as you read. He grew up in a Christian background, lost his faith, uh, but not completely. He's still got all the, the trimmings. You know, He's a nice man, he cares for the students, all those kinds of things. His wife had a serious accident, uh, 
and only survived because he'd bought a Volvo with airbags a few weeks before, which was written with side airbags. And that shock has brought him back to a Bible study. Uh, so he's on his way back. So pray for him, because he, I think he's done a very honest job in writing about the beginnings of Western science, trying to be fair about the role of faith. Uh, and yet it's a very academic book. So you can give it to people who are really interested, who uh, are materialists, and they'll read it, and he will move them a, a little bit, I think. So what I've covered in a very brief overview is some of the early stuff in, in, his, in his account, which is much better, uh, much more coherent. But uh, I want to send you away with some things to think about primarily.